Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, January 4, 2024, we feature articles on a drug-eluting scaffold for infrapopliteal disease, a Phase two trial of cybaprenlimab in IgA nephropathy, liquefied petroleum gas cooking and the effects on severe infant pneumonia and on stunting in infants, a review article on communicating about serious illness and end of life, a clinical problem-solving describing a swell diagnosis, and perspective articles on the journal's historical, quote, Indian problem. We also feature a new clinical decisions on dietary protein restriction in chronic kidney disease. This feature, about a man with chronic kidney disease, offers a case vignette accompanied by two essays, one supporting adherence to a low-protein diet and the other recommending against it. We want to know what you decide. Visit nejm.org to vote. Drug-eluting resorbable scaffold versus angioplasty for infrapopliteal artery disease by Ramon Varco from the Prince of Wales Hospital, Randwick, New South Wales, Australia, and colleagues. Among patients with chronic limb-threatening ischemia, CLTI, and infrapopliteal artery disease, angioplasty has been associated with frequent reintervention and adverse limb outcomes from restenosis. This study evaluated the effect of the use of drug-eluting resorbable scaffolds on these outcomes. 261 patients with CLTI and infrapopliteal artery disease were randomly assigned in a 2-to-1 ratio to receive treatment with an everolimus-eluting resorbable scaffold or angioplasty. The composite primary efficacy endpoint of freedom from above-ankle amputation of the target limb, occlusion of the target vessel, clinically-driven revascularization of the target lesion, and binary restenosis of the target lesion at one year was observed. That is, no events occurred in 74% of patients in the scaffold group and 44% of patients in the angioplasty group. Absolute difference, 30 percentage points. The primary safety endpoint of freedom from major adverse limb events at six months and from perioperative death was observed in 165 of 170 patients in the scaffold group and 90 of 90 patients in the angioplasty group. Absolute difference, minus three percentage points. Serious adverse events related to the index procedure occurred in 2% of the patients in the scaffold group and 3% of those in the angioplasty group. Among patients with CLTI due to infrapopliteal artery disease, the use of an everolimus-eluting resorbable scaffold was superior to angioplasty with respect to the primary efficacy endpoint. Joshua Beckman from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dallas, writes in an editorial that resorbable scaffolds are a newer technology designed to provide support to the vessel wall and prevent acute and subacute artery closure. Over time, the device is resorbed and fosters more natural artery remodeling, given that the device is not permanently present, and preserved vasomotion. In addition to allowing for the dissolution of the arterial support structure, these devices may provide a platform for drug elution. 
The device tested by Varco and colleagues consists of a polymer backbone coated with the anti-proliferative mTOR inhibitor, Everolimus. What truly marks the trial by Varco and colleagues as important is not only the arterial patency data, but also the clinical endpoints. The inclusion of clinical endpoints is less common in studies of new devices for the treatment of vascular disease of the leg than in studies of medications. This is the third trial of treatment for peripheral artery disease published recently that included outcomes that clinicians and patients would identify as important. The other two are the Eminent trial and the PROMISE-2 study. The recent studies suggest that the field of endovascular intervention for peripheral artery disease is maturing into one of evidence-based medicine, focusing on both device success and clinical outcomes. Revascularization is an integral component of limb preservation, but it is not the only therapy, and it is not yet a perfect one. As the field moves forward with new treatments, the incorporation of clinical outcomes should be standard. Only then will clinicians be able to understand the true value of new tools and treatments. A Phase two study of cybaprenlimab in patients with IgA nephropathy by Mohit Mather from the Leicester General Hospital, United Kingdom, and colleagues. IgA nephropathy is the most common cause of primary glomerulonephritis worldwide. At least 30% of affected patients endure progression to kidney failure within 20 to 30 years after diagnosis, despite having received optimized standard care. A proliferation-induced ligand, APRIL, is implicated in the pathogenesis of IgA nephropathy. Cybaprenlimab is a humanized IgG2 monoclonal antibody that binds to and neutralizes April. In this Phase two trial, 155 adults with biopsy-confirmed IgA nephropathy who were at high risk for disease progression despite having received standard care treatment were randomly assigned to receive intravenous cybaprenlimab or placebo once monthly for 12 months. At 12 months, the geometric mean ratio reduction from baseline in the 24-hour urinary protein-to-creatinine ratio was 47.2%, 58.8%, 62%, and 20% in the cybaprenlimab 2mg, 4mg, and 8mg groups and the placebo group, respectively. At 12 months, the least squares mean change from baseline in the estimated glomerular filtration rate was minus 2.7, minus 1.5, and minus 7.4 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared in the cybaprenlimab 2 milligram, 4 milligram, and 8 milligram groups and the placebo group, respectively. The incidence of adverse events that occurred after the start of administration of cybaprenlimab or placebo was 78.6% in the pooled cybaprenlimab groups and 71.1% in the placebo group. In patients with IgA nephropathy, 12 months of treatment with cybaprenlimab resulted in a significantly greater decrease in proteinuria than placebo. In an editorial, 
Kevin Lemley from the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine and Richard Glasshock from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, both in Los Angeles, write that cybaprenlimab was efficacious with respect to multiple pre-planned endpoints. Proteinuria decreased in a dose-dependent manner regardless of the severity of proteinuria at baseline, and these reductions in the urinary protein-to-creatinine ratio persisted at 16 months among the patients who were receiving the higher doses of cybaprenlimab. The incidence of clinical remission was higher with cybaprenlimab than with placebo. Highly suppressed free April levels also rebounded by 16 months. The incidence of serious adverse events that occurred after the start of administration of cybaprenlimab or placebo was similar among the groups. The degree of reduction in proteinuria with cybaprenlimab was consistent with substantial protection of kidney function, which is supported by the stabilization of the EGFR, at least over the course of the trial. The fact that the reduced April levels were not sustained after cybaprenlimab was stopped suggests that long-term treatment would be needed by most patients. Thus, the possibility of the eventual development of antibodies against cybaprenlimab remains. Overall, the findings of this Phase two trial are highly encouraging. Thus, a Phase three trial is eagerly awaited. We do not yet know where April inhibition will fit within the rapidly evolving landscape of IgA nephropathy therapies, but this trial provides hope for a bright springtime for the treatment of this vexing disease. Liquefied Petroleum Gas or Biomass Cooking and Severe Infant Pneumonia by Eric McCollum from Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland, and colleagues. Pneumonia is a leading cause of death among children worldwide, with most deaths occurring in infants younger than one year of age. Approximately 83% of the 808,000 annual deaths from pneumonia among children occur in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. Observational studies suggest that exposure to fine particulate matter with an aerodynamic diameter of 2.5 micrometers or less, PM2.5, from incomplete combustion of solid fuel is a risk factor for pneumonia. Nearly 30% of the global pediatric deaths from pneumonia are attributed to household air pollution. This study assessed whether cooking with an unvented liquefied petroleum gas LPG stove and fuel during pregnancy and the offspring's first year of life would lead to a lower incidence of infant pneumonia and other health outcomes than biomass, that is, wood, charcoal, animal dung, and coal cooking. The trial involved 3,200 pregnant women 18 to 34 years of age and between 9 to less than 20 weeks gestation in India, Guatemala, Peru, and Rwanda from May 2018 through September 2021. The women were assigned to cook with unvented LPG stoves and fuel or to continue cooking with biomass fuel. 3,061 infants were born and included in the study. High uptake of the intervention led to a reduction in personal exposure to PM2.5 among the children, with a median exposure of 24.2 micrograms per cubic meter in the intervention group 
and 66 micrograms per cubic meter in the control group. A total of 175 episodes of severe pneumonia were identified during the first year of life, with an incidence of 5.67 cases per 100 child years in the intervention group and 6.06 cases per 100 child years in the control group. No severe adverse events were reported to be associated with the intervention as determined by the trial investigators. The incidence of severe pneumonia among infants did not differ significantly between those whose mothers were assigned to cook with LPG stoves and fuel and those whose mothers were assigned to continue cooking with biomass stoves. Effects of cooking with liquefied petroleum gas or biomass on stunting in infants by William Checkley from Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, and colleagues. Household air pollution is associated with stunted growth in infants. This study evaluated whether the replacement of biomass fuel with LPG for cooking could reduce the risk of stunting. 3,200 pregnant women 18 to 34 years of age in four low- and middle-income countries were included. Women at 9 to less than 20 weeks gestation were randomly assigned to use a free LPG cookstove with continuous free fuel delivery for 18 months or to continue using a biomass cookstove. The length of each infant was measured at 12 months of age. Adherence to the intervention was high, and the intervention resulted in lower prenatal and postnatal 24-hour personal exposures to fine particulate matter than the control. Mean prenatal exposure, 35 micrograms per cubic meter versus 103.3 micrograms per cubic meter. Mean postnatal exposure, 37.9 micrograms per cubic meter versus 109.2 micrograms per cubic meter. Stunting occurred in 27.4% of the 1,171 infants included in the analysis of the infants born to women in the intervention group and in 25.2% of the 1,186 infants included in the analysis of those born to women in the control group. An intervention strategy starting in pregnancy and aimed at mitigating household air pollution by replacing biomass fuel with LPG for cooking did not appear to reduce the risk of stunting in infants. Ultrasound blood-brain barrier opening and aducanumab in Alzheimer's disease by Ali Rezai from the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, Morgantown, West Virginia, and colleagues. A challenge of therapeutics in Alzheimer's disease has been restriction by the blood-brain barrier of the delivery of therapeutic agents to brain tissue. Low-intensity, focused ultrasound guided by MRI has been shown to reversibly open the blood-brain barrier in patients with Alzheimer's disease or other neurologic disorders. In patients with Alzheimer's disease, anti-amyloid antibodies have been used to reduce cerebral amyloid beta load. These investigators applied focused ultrasound with each of six monthly aducanumab infusions to temporarily open the blood-brain barrier with the goal of enhancing amyloid removal in selected brain regions in three participants over a period of six months. 
the reduction in the level of amyloid beta was numerically greater in regions treated with focused ultrasound than in the homologous regions in the contralateral hemisphere that were not treated with focused ultrasound, as measured by 18F-PET scan. Cognitive tests and safety evaluations were conducted over a period of 30 to 180 days after treatment, but the trial was not powered to detect clinical changes. In a Science Behind the Study editorial, Kulervo Heinenen from Sunnybrook Research Institute, Toronto, writes that the blood-brain barrier safeguards the brain from harmful substances while allowing essential nutrients to pass through. However, it also impedes the delivery of drugs to the brain. This challenge is especially prominent when treating Alzheimer's disease, a neurodegenerative disorder with limited treatment options that imposes a major burden on healthcare due to an aging global population. The experimental treatment reported by Rezai and colleagues involves the creation of an opening in this barrier by MRI-guided focused ultrasound to enhance drug delivery. Focused ultrasound generates a mechanical wave inducing oscillations in the medium that transitions between compression and rarefaction. Gas bubbles, when injected into the bloodstream and exposed to the ultrasound field, undergo greater compression and expansion than surrounding tissues and blood. These oscillations create mechanical stress on blood vessel walls, leading to the stretching and opening of tight junctions between endothelial cells. They also stimulate active vacuole transport through these cells. Thus, the integrity of the blood-brain barrier is compromised, allowing molecules to diffuse into the brain. The barrier reseals itself within approximately six hours, with less time for mild exposures or larger molecules and more time after higher exposure levels. The trial by Rezai and colleagues involves small tissue volumes, which were not systematically chosen, in one side of the brain of three patients only. Expanding treatment to clinically significant volumes on both sides of the brain is crucial for assessing its efficacy in slowing disease progression. Moreover, additional studies are needed to establish long-term safety and efficacy and cost-effective treatment devices that are not reliant on online MRI guidance must be developed for broader accessibility. That all being said, the results spark optimism that this approach to treatment, together with agents that remove amyloid beta, might eventually slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Navigating and Communicating About Serious Illness and End of Life, a review article by Vicki Jackson from Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston, and Linda Emanuel from the Feinberg School of Medicine, Chicago. Conversations about prognosis can be difficult and confusing for both patients and clinicians. It is not uncommon that patients who have a serious illness, such as cancer or heart failure, continue to express seemingly unrealistic hopefulness despite conversations in which accurate prognostic information has been well communicated and tailored to the patient's preferences. This reaction is disconcerting for clinicians who want to understand what is most important to the patient and are rightly concerned that a patient may not be prepared for the end of life. Such concerns that lack of preparation can lead to poor quality end-of-life care are supported by evidence of late referrals to hospice and unwanted in-hospital deaths. 
Partnering with patients as they navigate serious illness requires effectively communicating prognostic information while responding to the emotions generated by the conversation. Clinicians should expect and have the skill to engage in a continuum of conversations that allow patients to integrate prognostic information cognitively and emotionally. Patients oscillate between expressions of intense hopefulness and more realistic aspirations. This is a normal and expected part of the process. Facilitating patient exploration of their hopes and worries allows them to grieve, understand their priorities, and build coping skills for living with a serious illness. As patients integrate prognostic information, clinicians should discuss what is most important to the patient given the likely illness trajectory and incorporate these goals and values into a recommendation about medical care, including care at the end of life. A Swell Diagnosis A Clinical Problem Solving by Jad Alam from the American University of Beirut Medical Center, Lebanon, and colleagues. A 19-year-old previously healthy man presented to the emergency department with sudden onset severe and diffuse abdominal pain that had started one hour earlier. He reported that the pain was not localized and came on abruptly with no noticeable trigger. He recalled a similar episode that had occurred several months before presentation, which resolved gradually and for which he did not seek medical attention. On evaluation, his vital signs were normal. Physical examination, in particular a soft and non-tender abdomen, and laboratory tests were unrevealing. Treatment with intravenous fluids and an antiemetic agent was initiated, and he was discharged three hours after presentation to the ED, at which point his symptoms had completely resolved. Over the next several years, the patient presented to the ED on numerous occasions with the same symptom complex. Routine laboratory tests were repeatedly negative. After extensive evaluation that ruled out infectious, inflammatory, and structural causes of pain, a CT scan that showed bowel wall thickening, considered in the context of a family history of episodic abdominal pain in an uncle, generated concern for hereditary angioedema as the cause of his symptom complex. Hereditary angioedema is a rare autosomal dominant genetic disorder that typically develops in childhood. The disease is characterized by recurrent episodes of swelling in various parts of the body and can be severely debilitating. Laboratory testing that documented a low level of C1 esterase activity confirmed the diagnosis. Indigenous Americans, the journal's historical quote, Indian problem, a perspective by David Jones from Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and colleagues. By the time the journal was launched in 1812, Boston had witnessed two centuries of destructive confrontations between Europeans and indigenous Americans. Although some indigenous communities persisted in New England, most conspicuously in whaling, few indigenous people would have been visible on Boston's streets. But away from the Atlantic coast, North America remained an indigenous continent. Over the ensuing years, the journal published thousands of articles that mentioned indigenous people, but far fewer that focused on them. The journal, like American society more broadly, had a, quote, 
Indian problem. Racism against indigenous Americans and settler colonial strategies shaped centuries of dispossession, war, subjugation, and impoverishment. These attitudes persist today. The journal's authors theorized about the merits of savagery and civilization, decried indigenous medicines, speculated about susceptibility to epidemics, or prophesized indigenous extinction. The disdain was often gratuitous. An 1895 article about syphilis slandered indigenous women who had been sent to assimilationist industrial schools. Quote, a prevalent opinion, especially among philanthropists, is that the Indian S is a model of chastity. God spare the model. Even some of the girls who have been to the schools on the Atlantic coast are common property for white men. What their habits with the bucks are is not known, but many white devils contract venereal diseases from the blankets. A 1913 essay by Ernest Codman about appendicitis included a striking caption. Quote, there is no good Indian but a dead Indian, and there is no safe appendix but a completely obliterated one. This adage, a relic of frontier wars, endured for decades. Equally striking are the erasures. Decades could pass without the journal seriously engaging with problems of indigenous health. For centuries, European colonists and American settlers felt entitled to seize indigenous lands and devastate indigenous communities. These processes were cataclysmic. Indigenous communities contend with pronounced health inequities to this day. And yet writings in the journal from many influential health experts, routinely expressed Euro-American fantasies of superiority and conquest. What can American medicine offer in service of apology, reconciliation, and repair to resurgent indigenous communities? Although it's simple enough to mine the journal's archive for slanderous commentaries, the challenge is to strike a balance among documenting what authors said, conveying empathy and outrage, and suggesting productive interpretation. The journal's historical commentaries about indigenous Americans reveal more about authors' and editors' values and priorities than about indigenous communities themselves. Such racist discourse reflected, perpetuated, and legitimated settler colonists' faith in the righteousness of their mission. It's essential that readers understand these dynamics if they are to recognize and repudiate similar processes at work today. In our Images in Clinical Medicine, a 43-year-old woman presented to the dermatology clinic with an eight-year history of atrophic telangiectatic yellow-brown plaques with irregular violaceous borders on both shins. Analysis of skin biopsy of the right shin showed several layers of necrobiosis within the dermis, perivascular inflammatory cell infiltrates, collagen degeneration, and findings consistent with granulomatous dermatitis. A diagnosis of necrobiosis lipoidica was made. Necrobiosis lipoidica is a chronic granulomatous skin disorder that is frequently associated with diabetes, 
and may precede the development of impaired glucose control. However, the condition is also seen in persons without diabetes, as occurred in this patient who had normal results on glycemic testing. There are no evidence-based guidelines for treatment, and the lesions often abate on their own. In another image, a 54-year-old woman presented with a crooked, painful finger after falling onto her outstretched hand. Radiographs of the right hand show dorsal dislocation of the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints of the fifth finger, which created a stepladder shape. A diagnosis of simultaneous dislocation of the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints of the fifth finger was made. Although dislocation of an interphalangeal joint is commonly seen, simultaneous dislocations within the same finger are rare. Treatment with closed reduction and splinting of the finger was provided. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.